This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So being a small business owner, anytime, uh, has lots of challenges for sure. And often small business people end up in some kind of debt, sometimes serious, sometimes not so serious. But the cool thing about this segment is that we're going to talk about business debt basics, common mistakes to avoid when you're dealing with a business debt, as well as getting some good information, getting good debt help for small business. And in British Columbia, virtually anyone can become self-employed. And there's tons and tons of people who are self-employed. And there's really no handbook explaining how to get the financial ins and outs of it. Uh, And that's why we're talking to Blair Manton, uh, who spends a lot of time, I'm sure, right, Blair, that you're talking to business owners who are struggling with business debts and 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 didn't know possibly some pieces or liabilities that they should have known either before they got started or as they start to wind things down. Oh, absolutely, Elaine. So, you know, being a small business owner can be some of the most rewarding times of your working life. It can also be some of the most difficult times of your working life. And to, to what you've alluded to here, Elaine, uh, the challenge is nobody sits you down and gives you, you know, the talk, the rules of the road, here's all the pitfalls. You can just start up tomorrow. Anybody can start up various structures, and we'll talk about what those are. And the government doesn't care if you don't know what you're supposed to do. Um, so, for example, I, I meet with people quite often who they might have been in business for two or three years, didn't know they were supposed to charge GST. And what happened is the government has assessed them 5% of everything that they've sold as if they had collected it. Government doesn't Mm. care whether you collected it or not. If you were supposed to collect it, it's now your liability. So there's a bunch of potential minefields that if you take the right uh, steps up front, get a little bit of advice, uh, you can really avoid um, some of these things that can trip you up in the first few years of being self-employed. Okay, so where's a good place to start with this? The different kinds of businesses that people can yeah. set up? Because I know that when I did this a long time ago with someone, uh, it was this was brand new information. I had never even heard some of these terms as we sort of move forward on it. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting too because I don't find many uh, situations where someone you know sets it out pretty straightforwardly. Here's the way you can structure your business. Here's some pros and cons. But that's exactly what we're going to do today, and we're going to start right there. So uh, let's talk about how you can structure a self-employed business in the province of BC. So there's three common ways that you can do it. Each one has some advantages and disadvantages, and definitely uh, there's some escalations in complexity as you move from one one structure to another. Uh, It's important to really get the right help at the start. So an accountant uh, and or a lawyer can be invaluable, and you don't necessarily need to spend thousands of dollars, uh, but in the space of a few meetings with the lawyer, discussing your objectives, um, some meetings with an accountant so that you you understand how your business flows and what your reporting requirements might be, um, that can be, you know, a stitch in time saves nine. Uh, that can really pay off uh, in spades in the future just by knowing all of your responsibilities by getting some help. In terms of how you can actually structure your, your business, uh, the easiest way and the most common way is to operate as a sole proprietorship. Um, so in general, if you haven't set up, you know, either a corporation or a partnership, which is what we're going to talk about next, by default, you'd be a sole proprietorship. And it's the most straightforward way to start a business or to be 
become a contractor. And what it means is especially you as the owner of the business and the business itself, you're the same entity. You're not legally separated. The assets and debts of the business are also your personal assets and debts. And the income that the business makes after its business expenses, that's reported on your personal tax return each year. So if you're setting up as a sole proprietorship, um, you're not setting up a separate entity. Um, you're just deciding I'm going to do work in my own name, um, or you can, you can call it something else. But at the end of the day, it's still the same legal entity as you yourself. There's no separation. Right. Okay. That's easy to understand. Mm-hmm. And definitely that's the most common way. And I find the simplest, and for most people that I deal with, you know, that's the right structure. And we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes here. Um, you know, a second way to get it set up, and this is very uncommon, I don't see much of it, and it sounds pretty simple, but there's some added complexity which can make this very unattractive for a lot of people, uh, is to consider setting up as a partnership. So if two or more people or two or more proprietorships even are combining resources in a business, they could, and they're not required to, but they could establish formal terms and become a partnership, which is relatively easy to get underway. You just need a partnership agreement. But what's important here is that each partner is now personally responsible for the debts of the business, and they share in the liabilities of the actions of the other partners. So what that means is if you go into partnership with somebody and that person signs a deal on behalf of the partnership and that deal is a bad thing for the business and the business can't afford to pay, um, both partners could be fully liable and it's what co- what's called joint and several liability, which might mean you know, you've only invested $10,000 into the partnership, but you've got a lot more assets than that. All of your assets could be at risk because it's an unlimited liability if the partnership, uh, even if it's you're not involved, that your other partner does something that just doesn't make sense and incurs some liability, as part of that partnership, all of your assets could be called into question. So it's something you want to be very careful about. Uh, in most cases, people uh, haven't thought about that idea of the liability of all of the partners being joint and several when they consider a partnership. They just say, well, it sounds like it's pretty easy. We're going to be partners. Uh, but you definitely want to consider the downside of the liability. Yeah, it, there is a downside for sure. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that for sure. What's the, so yeah, what's I don't. I don't see many. I don't see many partnerships, and you know, even a lot of the big accounting and law firms, they're not set up as basic partnerships. They're set up as you know a limited liability partnership, where there's a whole lot more structure behind it to try to you know again protect the assets of each individual partner. But for the average person who's listening to our our show today, uh, setting up as a partnership, just be aware the actions of your partner could impact all of your personal assets and your liabilities as well. Okay. When I see the word corporation, and I know that's the third one we're going to talk about, that seems like it, it has to be a big thing. Well, it doesn't necessarily, and, that, and that's interesting. So a corporation, again, it's a word that can intimidate some people, but all it means is there's a separate legal entity. A corporation uh, is essentially like a separate person. Um, it's someone that can hold assets, it can acquire debts and contracts, it can sue or be sued. So ostensibly, when someone sets up a corporation, what you're doing that is to create some separation between you as the business owner and the business's operations itself. So you'd want to say, you know, if I've got a bunch of assets that I want to keep safe, I'll set up a corporation to run my business. Um, And then if something were to go wrong with the business, ideally, the corporation is going to shield me because the corporation will be liable. And, you know, I'm just the owner or the shareholder of the corporation. So sounds great so far, right? 
Yeah, really good. Right, but challenges abound. Uh, So the first one is, to your point, Elaine, it is more complicated, more costly to set up a corporation and then to maintain it on an annual basis. You definitely need to be incurring some accounting fees, some legal fees, uh, because it's not just your personal taxes anymore. It's the corporation has to do a corporate tax return. Um, There's various compliances for the province to keep the corporation in good standing. Um, So you should plan, you know, I would think at least in the low single digit thousands, you know, maybe around 1,000 to 1,500 for a basic corporation um, just for accounting and legal fees every year for maintenance. So there are the costs and the complexity. Now, the second part, which is even if you're okay with that cost and complexity, is unfortunately the idea of a limited liability within a corporation. It can be frustrated in several key ways, which often does happen. So the first way is if you think about you've got this business, it's a new corporation, you want it to go out and borrow money, who's going to loan money to a new corporation without the ownership guaranteeing those funds? So if a new corporation is going to go out and sign a lease, for example, it's almost every case that I see, they also get the owner of that corporation to sign personally so that the corporation doesn't pay, the person is still on the hook. So that kind of frustrates that limitation of liability. Quite often, if the corporation is going to borrow money from the bank, they also need the owner or the shareholder or the, or the person who's running the corporation to give a personal guarantee on those funds. So even though the corporation ostensibly is a separate legal entity, quite often the obligations that you're required to guarantee mean that the individual behind the corporation is still on the hook for the most important amounts owing. Uh, the last point on this just has to do with government amounts. Um, government, um, you know, they respect that a corporation is a separate legal entity, but if you start to run up money for GST owing, or if you have employees for their tax deductions or even for their wages, you're not allowed to just leave that liability in the corporation, shut down the business and move on. If you have a corporation that owes money to the government for uh, GST or for those payroll source deductions, that becomes a personal liability of the director of the corporation. So there can be a number of little minefields that sometimes when I sit down with someone and say, I want to incorporate because of this, 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 when I explain to them, well, you're probably going to have to guarantee everything anyway, and the biggest potential liabilities are the government, and they're not going to be stopped by the corporation. So do you really want to incur the costs every year of accounting and legal to do something that you know, might not actually protect you at the end of the day? And sometimes people do think twice about setting up a corporation. Got it. Okay. So what's, the, so what's next? Because we just have about uh, a couple of minutes left in this segment. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting, right? Because we've got so much that we need to cover. I know, uh, there's you know, a lot. Yeah, I think if we were to talk a little bit about some of the pitfalls uh, that people can run into. So we've talked a little bit um, about, you know, CRA debts, about collecting and remitting GST. And yeah. just a point on there is that the important number is $30,000. So okay. if you're starting to earn revenues of more than $30,000, that's typically when you need to start registering for GST. So what you'd want to do is there's very few professions that are exempt from GST. There are some, and I won't list them just in case it's changed, but you'd want to confirm with with CRA based on your occupation, is it the $30,000 limit or are you just not subject to GST at all? But that's something you want to set up very, very early on within your corporation. Okay. Um, I think one of the bigger pitfalls that I see as well uh, is the idea of really avoiding some of the the hard decisions or some of the hard analysis to do with your business. So, you know, you, you really love what you're doing every day, uh, but sometimes if when a third party looks at the books of the business, you say, oh my God, like you, you've really just been procrastinating. You've been putting off some of the hard decisions that you need to make. Um, so for example, um, you know, during this COVID uh, 
a pandemic that we're dealing with now, uh, it can be really difficult to look at your staff and say, you know what, I don't have work for you in the short term. But if you took a hard look at your business and what's happened to your revenue, that might be the right answer. You'd have to make that that decision relatively quickly. What people often often default to doing is injecting personal funds continually into their business, you know, sometimes drawing down their home equity or drawing down their retirement funds. So it's usually a really big warning sign if you're having to basically pay money into the corporation on a regular basis or if you're borrowing more money, um, you know, to keep things operating, you might be, you know, avoiding some of the hard decisions that you need to make. So just make sure you're objective when you look towards your business and you are making some of those hard decisions on what, what can be paid and, you know, whether you're willing to invest more of your personal funds into a business that might not be able to eventually repay it back to you. Got it. See, the thing is, when you start talking about all these different aspects and things to be on the watch for, or I would think that you would be the right person to talk to before I venture into something. Am I right about that? Well, it, it depends. So as a trustee, I'm not a lawyer. So usually for structuring yourself, you'd want to have a lawyer give you some good insight, but absolutely to talk through the hypotheticals about, you know, if things don't go according to plan, what's my potential liability? That's absolutely what a trustee can help you with. So, you know, it would be one tool in your toolbox, but I would still think you'd want the accountant and the lawyer to help give you some good advice on how to structure and then just uh, supplement that with some trustee advice as well. Yeah, no, that makes good sense. Yeah. And cover as many bases as you can, because you bring something different to the table than a lawyer would or an accountant would. And I I guess that's what I was thinking about. Uh, So in closing, I just want to remind you that there's lots of ways to get some good information from sans-trustee.com. If you've got questions or thoughts, also give them a call and make that appointment 1-800-661-3030 for the free consultation. And a reminder again, you're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Uh, we're going to continue talking about this consumer debt study uh, that Sands and Associates does every year. And this year, of course, being 2020, uh, a little bit different in terms of, you know, all those uh, numbers uh, also include impacts and effects from the pandemic. And uh, let's first talk about the study in general. If somebody happened not to hear the first segment that we talked about it, what can you tell us a bit about the study in general, Blair? Yeah, so every year uh, at Sands and Associates, we do a study of our past clients. So we, we survey, um, you know, each year, somewhere, somewhere in the range of 1,500 to 2,000 past clients. We get really detailed responses from them about, you know, their circumstances, what caused them to seek debt help, uh, what were the impacts they were feeling, and how is life after they've resolved their indebtedness. And it's the only study of its kind that focuses just on BC residents and focuses just on individuals who've taken positive steps to deal with their debt by filing either a consumer proposal or a personal bankruptcy. So it's really insightful for anybody who thinks they might be struggling with debt um, to you know, hear the profile of those who took some action to deal with it and see how much it resonates with what they're facing right now. And in this segment, we're going to talk about not necessarily the, the nuts and bolts of it, but the, uh, the impact that it has on someone's overall well-being. And I know you guys were able to gather some keynotes as a result. 
Yeah, and that's what's so interesting in, in my job as, as a trustee is, you know, yeah, the numbers change with each individual, but it's the overall personal story, it's the family, it's the issues that someone is going through, and just knowing how overwhelming a debt problem can feel and just how positive people can feel once it's, once it's resolved. So it's not the case, you know, you just cleanse off the debt and that's that. There can be just a transformative effect, someone from a very tough situation dealing with the debt to what they can do once they've resolved their debt. But it also makes the point that being in debt is just no fun. It really impacts a lot of aspect a lot of aspects of a person's life. Well, let's talk about some of those, Blair. Yeah, you know, in terms of how you know you have a debt problem, uh, it's not necessarily just an arithmetic calculation. You look at the payments you're making, you look at how long you're going to be in debt. For the vast majority of people, so more than three in five people in the survey, they said the way they knew they were in debt, in, in, in a debt problem, was overwhelming stress. And that stress can cause a range of effects. Uh, it can be anger, irritability. Uh, it can be feelings of helplessness or hopelessness. Uh, it can even drive certain arguments with a spouse or a partner about money. And for 80% of people, um, they said their debt stress actually led to anxiety or depression, uh, which can have, you know, physical manifestations as well as, as mental manifestations. So, um, you know, things like uh, heart palpitations, trouble sleeping, um, even one in six individuals who eventually sought help for their debt uh, so that they experienced thoughts of suicide. And, you know, uh, those, those are people in very fragile situations. And I've had those discussions with individuals saying, um, you know, this is not such a problem that doesn't have a solution. You just need to look for the solution, but it can just seem so dark uh, and so hopeless at the point if, you, if you're saying, you know, I owe this much money, I'm never going to be able to pay it off, you know, what do I do? I would think it's, it, and you mentioned it in terms of uh, stress on the relationships with your spouse, but I would think that that could overflow into all, all areas of your life as well. Yeah, for, for 70% of people, they said their relationships with their family and others were negatively impacted by being in debt. So it's you know, the whole idea. You're not yourself uh, when you're so far in debt and your mind is just always thinking about an obligation that you can't meet. Uh, for 16% of people, they said their job performance actually suffered. And you know, how counterproductive is that? You can't even be your best at your job, which would help you pay off the debt because the stress is really dragging you down. And for about 40% of people, the debt stop them from moving forward with the milestones that they wanted to achieve in their life, whether it's starting a family or purchasing a home. Uh, a number of folks just said, you know, I just feel so hopeless about the future. I can't even contemplate these milestones, let alone start to take steps uh, to make them real. And I want to add here, you know, if any of this, what we're talking about at this moment is ringing a bell for you, uh, that's part of this discussion sounds like your thoughts or something that you've been thinking about, this is a great place to start, is give Sands & Associates a call. It's 1-800-661-3030 and sort of meet that debt issue or concern or problem head on. Again, it's 1-800-661-3030. Um, what about the issues that were top of mind for people when they're trying to deal with this debt? Yeah, we asked people, you know, what are you worried about? What are your worries when it comes to debt? And no surprise, for 75% of people, um, they were worried about paying off their debt, which obviously they got some debt help and they were able to deal with that. Uh, for 65% of people, they were most worried about being able to meet their basic costs of living. Um, so it gets harder and harder in the province of BC, you know, to make ends meet, especially if you're on a fixed income like a retiree um, or perhaps someone on social assistance, for example. It can get very difficult. Uh, for over half of people, um, they were just so worried because their debt 
balances seem to just be the same every month. You know, they'd make all the minimum payments and they were starting to figure out, you know, of this $200 minimum payment, $190 of it went to interest, $10 went to the principal, which I barely noticed. And gee, they're asking me for the same amount of money next month. For about a third of people, they were very concerned about being able to fund their retirement. So looking to the future and saying, you know, I'm just struggling to, to pay the debt that I have, let alone save anything for retirement. Or if they weren't aware, if they had to, to restructure their debt, they'd be able to keep all of their retirement funds anyway, whether it was a pension or an RRSP. So sometimes just giving people the right information and their worries can get a lot worse, even if they don't need to restructure, sorry, can get a lot better, um, even if they don't need to necessarily restructure their debt. Okay, let's talk about that. Once people that you talked to or in, from the study got that professional help or support to deal with the debt, uh, the problem debt, how did that shift people? What, what were the things that they came, came away with? Mm-hmm. Well, in terms of meeting the living costs, so it's you know not the case you eliminate the debt and suddenly everyone's able to afford their living costs. I wish it was so, but it was a significant decline. So whereas two-thirds of people were really worried about meeting their living costs when they were dealing with their debt, uh, once people had resolved their indebtedness, that went down to about 37% of people were concerned about living costs. So, you know, just about half of what it was before. Um, once people had restructured their debt, you know, their attention started to shift to more financial goals. So for nearly half of people, they could start to consider, well, how am I going to fund my retirement? And for 30% of people, they were able to think about, well, how can I take that next milestone? Maybe I want to buy a house. Let's start saving for the down payment. And it's a good proportion. I wish it was higher, but 20% of people said, you know what? I'm no longer worried about money. So in some cases, it was the retiree who knew they could get by on their pension, but couldn't get by on their pension and all the debt payments. They resolved the debt payments, and they're saying, yeah, I can live with what I bring in each month. So that was a good 20% of folks said they just really didn't worry about money anymore. And you've got some more, uh, some wonderful examples that people actually started feeling uh, even more positive about their situation. Yeah, I think the one that I really like was the idea of being a resource for other, of, you know, letting your light shine to be a beacon of hope for others. Uh, nearly half of people said they were now more open to discussing finances with others, whether it's friends or family. Um, and 40% said they gained really good financial skills and knowledge to share with others. So the idea they could help someone who's suffering, someone close to them, who maybe just felt so ashamed, they reach out for help and suddenly they can be that resource that gives them shelter in the storm. And in, in finishing off this segment, I know that you've got some findings when it came to uh, warning signs for people. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, it just in a few seconds that we have left here, Lane, the one thing that I really want to highlight is what this study showed, and a really negative thing, is for 95% of people, they didn't seek help right away. Only 5% of people, when they knew they had a debt problem, they reached out, they sat down with the trustee, they figured out what they could do to move forward. The vast majority of people, they suffered, they suffered in silence. You know, maybe they cashed in some RRSPs or sold some assets they didn't have to sell. But at the end of the day, only 5% of people really minimized their suffering by reaching out for help right away. So if someone's listening, if that can just spur them to say, make the call sooner than what you think. If you're feeling stressed, that's the number one indicator that just have a conversation with a trustee. It's not going to cost you anything, and you're going to figure out if it's going to be something that can help you have a better tomorrow. I think that's such a, such a great idea too, Blair, because it's almost like getting another perspective about your situation. It may be serious that you need to take action, or it just may need uh, a bit of massaging or a few changes to be made, and, and you're going to be okay. But the key is to reach out and ask those questions and get some 
some help. The phone number that Blair talked about, 1-800-661-3030. Go to the website at sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Well, you know, Blair, never in a million years did we think that we would have to address something called pandemic financials. Uh, But here we are, and that's the topic of this segment, how to manage your debt during a pandemic and how to avoid those pitfalls. And if there's anybody around that can explain it to us, I'm pretty sure you're the guy to do it. Well, I'm going to do my best. And yes, Elaine, 2020 has definitely been an unprecedented year. Um, you know, January through February were pretty normal. But yeah, since, since March, um, you know, even all of my staff, we've been working from home. We're still seeing clients, you know, still quite busy. Um, but yeah, it's, it's quite a transformation in how we've, we've assisted our clients just trying to keep everybody safe these days. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about the how the, the pandemic's impacting some of the people who are connecting with you and your team? Yeah. So, Elaine, there's I, I sometimes summarize it. There's nobody that I'm speaking with who's better off as a result of this pandemic. You know, many, many people mm-hmm. are feeling the pinch. And, you know, the government's done, I think, a very respectable job of putting, you know, relief programs in place. Um, you know, creditors have done a good job of coming to the table with payment deferrals. But all of those are temporary solutions. And a lot of them are coming to ends relatively quickly. So we know CERB's been extended a couple of times, but it is looking like it's going to come to an end, you know, this fall. Uh, there'll be a trend transition to EI, but again, none of those are going to be permanent solutions for folks who've had their income interrupted. Um, and, you know, it's also the case that before the pandemic hit, BC consumers were already in a pretty perilous situation. Um, you know, we saw that insolvencies had risen more than 10% year over year in calendar year 2019 compared to 2018. Uh, and that's a huge increase because the year before they went up 1.8%. Mm-hmm. So it was really accelerating the number of folks who are already, already having trouble with debt. Um, and since the pandemic hit, you know, insolvency filings, bankruptcies and proposals, they've declined pretty significantly. Um, but I think any trustee that you speak to, and certainly myself and our firm here, we think it's just a temporary situation where people aren't better off, um, but they're taking advantage of payment deferrals. They're focusing on what's right in front of them, their necessities of paying the rent, uh, paying the mortgage, you know, sometimes paying down some of the debt. Um, but I think we're anticipating that a lot more folks are going to need our help um, over the next coming months here. And what about a payment deferral? How does that work for folks if that seems to be something that they're using? Yeah, so a payment deferral is where you work out with your creditors and you've, you've got to do this formally. You can't just stop paying and then expect they're going to say, oh, yeah, we'll defer those payments. Um, but a lot of creditors, you know, credit card companies, even mortgage companies, um, you know, they've offered a six-month moratorium on payments. Now, okay. that sounds great, but in general, what happens is they just continue to charge you interest, and that gets added to the balance. So, you know, if it's your mortgage, you're going to be paying more in the end because of that extra interest that you didn't pay for the six months. If it's your credit card, well, we Got know it. credit card interest rates, um, you know, you've just delayed making some payments, but they're still, you know, tacking those interest payments on. 
what's also interesting as well, and I think that's given people some comfort, um, is the creditor enforcement of debt has been at a standstill since about March. Um, so I wasn't hearing from clients. They were getting a ton of collection calls. Uh, the courts were shut down in every province across Canada. Uh, but that's really flipped, almost like a switch in the last couple of weeks. We're getting a ton of calls from people that collectors are hounding them. The collectors are all working from home now as well, it seems. Um, and with courts being reopened, I've had numerous clients who've been served with legal documents saying they're being pursued for payments and being pursued for a debt through a court system. You know, first off, it's pretty intimidating because most of us, you know, don't know all the ins and outs of what's a criminal offense versus civil. Um, you know, first off, you never go to jail for owing money unless there's just some fraud involved. Um, but, you know, it can be pretty scary to be, to be served some legal papers. And that's been happening more and more just in these last couple of weeks. So the idea of the standstill on enforcements, that's really come to a close very recently here. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, well, let's talk about the pitfalls that you that you want to talk about that are important ones that maybe people are thinking about, but boy, oh boy, at the end of the day, they're not the best the best option for you. What's your number one? Yeah, so I love doing these types of segments, Elaine, because to me it's navigating the minefield, and these are things that you don't want to step on because they're going to have you know much greater negative consequences than positive consequences. And I think the number one um, idea is the idea of getting a cosigner if you're going to try to consolidate your debts. So I, I speak to people quite often, and they say, you know, I tried to consolidate, get a consolidation loan at the bank, and they wouldn't approve me, but they said, you know, if I brought in husband or wife or mother or father, brother, sister, uh, you know, then they would agree if that person agreed to sign on the dotted line. Um, you know, I've, I've said many times, people ask, you know, when is it wise to get a co-signer for a debt consolidation loan? And the answer is almost never. There's almost never a situation uh, where that's going to be a good idea, um, because, you know, first off, the bank might have known something when they're not willing to, to approve you for the consolidation loan. They might have said, you know, you're going to have a bit of trouble paying this back or you're not going to have the assets to support it. Um, so in some cases, you might want to listen to them and say, well, yeah, is that really going to be solving my problem? Is this a payment that I'm going to be able to make? Um, but the other thing is I find people really misunderstand, this is from the borrower and the co-signer point of view, a lot of people co-sign a debt thinking that they're never going to be called to pay the balance. And if they are called to pay the balance, at most, it's a 50-50 liability, uh, and that's completely false. So if you co-sign a debt, it's what's called joint and several liability, uh, which means you're responsible for the entire amount. So it doesn't matter if the person doesn't make any payments, the original borrower, the co-signer can be held accountable for 100% of the debt. And I think one final point here is that it really removes some flexibility um, in that in the event that you know you get the consolidation loan and you find out you can't pay off that consolidation loan and you need to see a trust perhaps do a consumer proposal, which is going to cut the debt and give you something you can afford, uh, or to file a personal bankruptcy to get you back to owing nobody anything very quickly, what happens is I can protect the individual who's doing the proposal or the bankruptcy, but I can't do anything to protect the cosigner. That person's agreed to be responsible for the debt, so it can really constrain an individual if they know a consumer proposal is in their best interest, but they know it's really going to hurt a family member or a friend who stepped up to cosign for them, they can just feel completely completely, you know, trapped in with their options, uh, not wanting to hurt someone who's put their name on the dotted line for them. Got it. And does that include, or can we lump credit, uh, you know, joint credit card accounts or vehicle financing, the same, the same situation plays out there? 
Well, yeah, you want to be careful on both of those, Elaine. So when it's a joint credit card account, you want to look at the cardholder agreement uh, and even look at the statements. If the statements are coming with two persons' names on them, um, then that's basically a joint debt, meaning that if one person doesn't pay the balance, the other person's fully responsible. Um, So even just getting a supplementary card, it can vary from bank to bank or card to card, uh, but there's definitely the potential that just by getting a supplementary card, you could be making yourself responsible for the balance that's outstanding. So most of the time, I recommend that people keep their accounts separate. Um, you know, it's usually just a minor convenience of having a supplementary card. Usually, it's just a better idea for the bank. They've got, you know, a couple of customers wrapped up. Um, so, I tend to recommend against it. Uh, with vehicle financing as well, um, similar to a consolidation loan, if something goes bad, if that vehicle, um, you know, is repossessed or written off or something, and there's a balance that's owing, um, that co-signer, again, could be held accountable for that. So, uh, in general, people should face their debt problems under their own steam is, is my firm belief. Um, and that's why I've got so much pride in the solutions that we're able to offer. You know, they're Canadian legislated, um, but they're not based on anybody having to get a co-signer or qualify. You know, everybody's got the right to get relief and, you know, at least investigate those before you try to, to get a co-signer involved. See, and this is one of the reasons uh, why talking with a trustee, a licensed insolvency trustee, especially at Sands and Associates, um, they've got all this knowledge and base of knowledge and information and it's fact and it's legal and it's all of those things that you really need when you get into a situation where you're having to deal with your debts. That's why, uh, that's why we do this show and that's why we do these segments. Uh, talking to a real licensed insolvency trustee is really the only way to go. And that includes getting information like this one, or number two, paying debt with uh, your RRSP funds. Yeah, this is probably the number one thing I see that really breaks my heart uh, because you don't have to do that. But oftentimes people are counseled into cashing in their RRSPs. You know, maybe it's a friend or family member or even a collection agent or someone at the bank that says, you know, you probably should pay your debts with your RRSPs because if you had to go bankrupt, you're going to lose those anyway. And, well, gee, 10 or 11 years ago, you might have lost them, but they've been protected assets for more than a decade now in Canada. So it's never a good idea to cash in your RRSPs for anything other than to fund your retirement. You worked hard to save that money. So if you're contemplating um, cashing in RRSPs to pay debt, it's absolutely a pitfall. Um, you know, oftentimes people don't consider the withholding tax that's going to be, um, you know, held back. And maybe that's not even going to be enough. And they might owe some taxes the next year following. So it can be a really depressing, uh, demoralizing situation where you've cashed in your retirement, you still haven't solved the debt problem, then you owe some taxes as well. So definitely it's one of those things. Think twice, think three times, get a lot of advice before you contemplate play cashing in your RRSPs. And I think uh, along with that is your is your third one, third pitfall to watch for, and that's getting advice from the wrong source. Yeah, it's really difficult when when you owe money because you can feel completely alone. And, you know, as much as I can say, I speak to people every day of the week, you know, sometimes six, eight consultations a day, um, and I'm giving people, you know, information they wouldn't get from anywhere else. But a lot of the times people reach out to whether it's friends or family members who are well-meaning but just might not have up-to-date information. Um, You know, even some accountants and lawyers, they don't specialize in insolvency, and the law can change quite a bit. So your best bet is always to talk to a licensed insolvency trustee 
honesty. And, you know, sometimes people think, well, do I need a referral? Do I have to pay a fee? And absolutely no. There's no referral required. Um, you know, I often say the hardest thing is just picking up the phone to call us. Um, you know, just give us a call. We often can do a same-day or a next-day meeting. We're doing everything uh, over Zoom or uh, Microsoft Teams or over the phone these days to keep everybody safe. Um, but there's nobody I speak with who doesn't breathe a sigh of relief, get some information filled in, and get some real black-and-white information instead of the murkiness or gray area that a lot of things can feel like when you're dealing with a debt that you can't pay. And I think it's important too, you know, licensed insolvency trustees, you guys are so regulated uh, by the federal government as to as to what somebody can do to get themselves out of debt. Uh, it's just just a really good reminder for folks. Absolutely, Elaine. We're the only people that are allowed to file either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. So lawyers can't help you make that filing. Only a trustee can do so. And a trustee's not going to ask you for a retainer or a fee for service. Everything's going to be set by the government tariff. Um, so again, it's probably a much better outcome for people to speak to a trustee first before they exhaust everybody else in the Rolodex and then eventually um, you know, end up a little bit despondent. And we've just got just under a minute left here. Um, this is the last one, but I don't think it's the least important one of, of all of the pitfalls we've talked about. And that's having your own financial recovery plan. Well, that's right, Elaine. So we hear a lot about, you know, business opening back up and getting the economy back on track. You've got to think that from your personal capacity as well and really realize that if you're looking at your statements and you're only able to make the minimum payments, you're locking yourself into a plan that's not going to have you recovered anytime soon, maybe not even in this lifetime. So even $1,000 of debt on a credit card can be 10 years of payments. $6,000 could be 40 years of payments. So really look long and hard that you can afford to pay down your debts and try to get things back on track, you know, in a calendar of two to three years. If you can't, then you should reach out to a trustee. Yeah, and you can do that a couple of ways. First of all, their website, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment is all about bankruptcy and the basics. And I got to say, before I started working with you, Blair, on doing the show, um, I didn't understand bankruptcy at all. And it was such a loaded word. And I'm pretty sure that I'm not alone in that, even today, that people, there's misunderstandings about it, don't understand how it works. And there's so much um, shame and uncertainty that comes along with that word. That's absolutely true, Elaine. You know, it's stigma for sure. There's a huge negative stigma about, you know, bankruptcy or people who file for bankruptcy. You know, even myself, you know, I went to business school, thought I was pretty financially literate, even worked at one of the largest accounting firms in the country. And I had no idea how bankruptcy works. So it's quite possible that people can be very financially sophisticated, even be accountants, be lawyers, be financial advisors, and really not have a good sense of what this legal remedy exists for, how it works, and how it can be life-changing for someone who needs the help. Excellent. Well, let's talk about it. Let's uh, talk about uh, how, well, first of all, how many people file for personal bankruptcy in this country? Yeah, it's, I, it's probably more than you think is one way I would say it. So in 2019, it was about 4.6 4. out of every thousand adult Canadians 
filed either a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy. And what that translates to across the country is just under 140,000 individual consumers. And that was a split of about 40% who filed for bankruptcy, about 60% who filed consumer proposal. And 2019, again, pre-pandemic, that was actually the highest insolvency rate since 2011. So it was a number um, that was growing each year. More and more people were finding themselves overextended uh, and needing the help to restructure their debt. Okay, and let's let's throw in talking about consumer proposals just as a as a bit of a, you know, a counterpoint to a bankruptcy. Yeah, so just for someone who doesn't know, we're going to focus mostly on bankruptcies today, but uh, consumer proposals are the alternative to bankruptcy, again, chosen about 60% of the time, even more so than a bankruptcy, and it's where you consolidate all of your debts into a single payment, you pay no interest, and you pay back what you can afford, usually in the range of 20 to 40% of the total debt. So incredibly powerful option, and if you're a listener to this show, you'll know we talk about it quite a bit. Okay, so I know that not everybody... uh contacts a licensed insolvency trustee if they're considering a bankruptcy. But of course, you guys are the licensed insolvency trustee, only people that can facilitate a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal uh, today. That's right, Elaine. So, you know, you don't need to pay any upfront fees. You don't need to hire a lawyer, an attorney, a consultant, anything like that. You just sit down with a a licensed insolvency trustee, and our job is to give you access to the insolvency system. So access to these laws that were written with the idea that the honest but unfortunate person, you know, has the right to start over, to start again, uh, unburdened by debt. So, you know, in simple terms, what bankruptcy means is it allows you to eliminate your debts to move forward owing nobody anything, and it achieves a financial fresh start. So can we talk about the impact that the pandemic had on the urgency for people who had big debt and were thinking about taking some action? How did, did it impact them? Well, it impacted them in the opposite way I would have thought. So when the pandemic hit and, you know, everyone is locked down, we thought bankruptcies proposals are going to go through the roof. Uh, what happened is there's been almost a 30% decrease in the number of people filing for insolvency uh, in 2020 compared to 2019 over the same period. So reasons for that, um, you know, it makes sense. The government replaced a whole lot of income when income was lost. Uh, the courts were closed for periods of time. So a lot of pressure was taken off of individuals. Uh, and then creditors did a lot of payments deferrals as well. So they didn't want to push people too hard, knowing that they probably would file an insolvency proceeding during the pandemic. So my impression here as professional is the can's been kicked down the road. So a lot of these debt problems didn't get resolved. They just got delayed. And we anticipate insolvency rates to increase significantly well beyond what they were before the pandemic. You know, once people start to have a bit of a runway and we're getting out of this. Right. And I know that you're, you've mentioned before too that this, this is just, this may be just the beginning where lots of people are, are looking at, okay, I don't get this and this and this right now. I'm going to have to take some action on this. I, I could have, I delayed it for a while, but I can't do that any longer. Yeah, just about everybody when we serve them, only 5% of people end up reaching out for help right away. 95% of people, they languish, they suffer for up to two years. So I think we're in that that period right now where a lot of people are suffering under their debt, suffering under the pandemic, uh, and they're going to be benefited when they do reach out to get some help. And I can't blame them, you know, so much uncertainty today in terms of how we're doing, what's in store for us. I mean, as a as a province, as a community, as a country, I mean, it, it really is a crazy time for folks. Oh, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I've never, we've never lived through anything like this and hopefully never will again. 
Exactly. Um, I just want to throw in here, too, if something that we've said already is kind of resonating with you and you want to take some action, I'm going to give you the number for Sands and Associates. It's 1-800-661-3030 or check out their website, sands-trustee.com. So what does it actually mean to declare bankruptcy today? Yeah, well, most bankruptcies in Canada, they're considered voluntary, which I've actually never seen somebody who didn't want to go into a bankruptcy being forced that way. Theoretically, it's possible. But in just about every case I've ever seen or every case I've ever seen, just about every case that's out there, uh, people voluntarily, they sit down with a trustee and they just decide, you know what, I'm not able to pay these debts off. I can't do a consumer proposal or I pay off a reduced balance with no interest. So I need the help um, to restructure myself, to go through this proceeding and emerge on the other side, owing nobody any anything and starting again unburdened by debt. Uh, the eligibility to go into a bankruptcy is pretty straightforward. You need to owe more than $1,000, so it's a pretty low bar, and the upper level is unlimited. So sometimes we see people with millions of dollars of debt. You know, Maybe there's been uh, you know, significant business failure or an ICBC claim that was denied, but for the vast majority of people, it's in and around the twenty-five dollars to $50,000 range of debt. Um, in terms of types of debt, you know, it's what you would expect. It's credit card debt, it's payday loans, overdrafts, student loans, income tax debt. All of those can be 100% forgiven if you go through a personal bankruptcy proceeding. The other piece I, w I just want to throw in, too, is, is that it's a private thing. Everybody's afraid that everybody will know, but it, actually that's not the case at all. Absolutely right, Elaine. So it's a very, very small percentage of bankruptcies where there has to be a newspaper notice, you know, less than 1%, just a few a year that I work on. The vast majority of cases, there's no newspaper notice. The only people that are notified are the people that you owe money to, so that they'll back off from their collections. And most people think it's going to take seven years to get through the proceeding. Over 80% of bankruptcies are done inside of nine months. And yes, that's right. Inside of nine months, people can go from being hopelessly burdened with their debt to back to owing nobody anything, and they can rebuild their credit from there. Can we skip ahead a little bit in this segment? Um, I'd like mm -hmm. to cover the, the common concerns that folks have when they're exploring the option of personal bankruptcy. Uh, maybe somebody's listening for just that information. Yeah, that, that's great, Elaine. Let, let's go through it. I think one of the, the main ones people wonder, especially if they're a married couple, is one spouse filing bankruptcy, does that mean the other spouse is put into bankruptcy or has to do something? And the answer is no. There's no connection between spouses financially, even if they're married, common law or whatever. One spouse is able to deal with their financial issues, file a bankruptcy and have no impact on the other spouse whatsoever. And and you can change jobs if that's an if that's something that comes up during this too, which I thought was interesting. That's right. In most cases, your employer isn't even going to know that you've made this filing. Um, if you go to a new employer, you don't have to tell them, "Hey, I'm in a bankruptcy or just got out of one." So there's no downside. There's no cap on the money you can earn uh, when you're in a bankruptcy. You can go and earn the income, and often you're better at your job because you're way less stressed about the debt problems that you're having. And what if you're in a situation that you might want to get out of town and go somewhere else? Because we know lots of people are on the move these days. Uh, how does that, is that impacted? Yeah, you know, some people ask me, okay, well, when do I have to surrender my passport? I'm like, well, never. You know, there, there's no check at the border. Are you bankrupt or not? You know, you can travel, you can move, you can do whatever. Um, sometimes people choose, you know, during this bankruptcy, I want to go and do something I've wanted to do for years, but couldn't because I had debt. You know, they go and teach English overseas um, or go and do a research project. You know, you're able to do whatever you want to do as long as obviously you can support your costs. But bankruptcy doesn't impact your mobility whatsoever. And the last thing I want to make sure that we mention is that it doesn't stop you from getting new credit. That sounds a bit scary, but it actually doesn't stop you from doing that. 
No, and in many cases, that's what holds people back. They think they're going to be permanently marked. They'll never get credit again. Uh, but you can rebuild your credit as soon as you're through the bankruptcy, so after usually the nine-month process. And it's common within two to three years that someone has a much better credit rating than what they had when they began the process. So it's not a life sentence. Far from it. You will recover. You'll rebuild probably quicker than you think. You want more information? Go to the website, sands-trustee.com, or better yet, give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. Set up that first consultation, see where you sit on this big spectrum, and take some action. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.